Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to finish up the Beatitudes right now as we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations be one of the biggest sources of strife, disagreement, uh, and, and just, you know, trouble in, in a marriage. If one spouse is expecting, you know, another spouse to do a certain amount of uh, household, you know, duties uh, or to go on, you know, X amount of, of dates or be, do this or, or do that, just unmet, one per, person's expecting this and the other person is expecting something else or doesn't know about these expectations, that can be one of the biggest sources of strife in a marriage. Uh, or in any like line, any relationships, whether that's work or church life or uh, just any relationships at all, that can be one of the biggest places of, of strife. That's why when I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I do is um, beforehand is I give out a packet of questions to each you know uh, person and have them answer it individually, of, all about expectations. And then I look at those things and I see where, you know, those expectations are not lining up at all. And I know that's where I'm going to need to spend a little bit of time helping iron those things out. But it is so very, very important that our expectations are right, that our expectations are known, and that we don't have some level of unmet expectations. And it's the same thing as we come to living for Christ, that we understand the expectations because in, in, in a lot of, I mean, we know like Christianity, we know what we can expect from Jesus. We know that we can expect his unending, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, his care, his peace, his presence, forgiveness, acceptance, love, eternal life, new heavens, new earth, all these things we can expect from Jesus. But Jesus also has expectations of us. And in a lot of ways, the Beatitudes kind of read as those lists of expectations and characteristics. They're expectations of a kingdom citizen. They are markers of, they are characteristics of someone who is a citizen of the kingdom. God expects his people to be marked by all these blessed things. And we should expect to see these things in our lives in an ever-increasing manner as we grow in the Lord. We should be marked by these things. I mean, for example, we should expect to ever-increasingly be poor in spirit and mourn over our sin. And be people of meekness because this is what the gospel does to us as we recognize our depravity and our brokenness. It drives us to be people who own it. And it drives us to humility. And it shows us our need and how we rebel against the king of the universe. And then that drives us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that we don't have in us. And as we hunger and thirst for that righteousness, that produces in us mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking. 
We should expect that of ourselves as God expects that our lives would be marked by mercy, being people that are merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. But then we come to the eighth beatitude, the final one. And we get blessed are those who are persecuted. And so reading these kind of is like expectations. I mean, it, it, it's, it's calling out to us in a very surprising way, part of the Beatitudes, that we need to expect persecution. And that there's a blessing for it. And that we are called to also rejoice in it. And so on the surface, it sounds really, really crazy. If we're going to, you know, reverse it a little bit here, but it, it would be like saying, hey, you know, be... Be sad when something good happens to you, right? It, it's, it doesn't make sense. That's nonsensical. But there it is, you know, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs, and I want you to note this, is the kingdom of heaven, right? First, like the present tense verb, there's is the kingdom of heaven. This is only the first beatitude and the last beatitude have present tense verbs, and both of them are the same promise. The first one, you know, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. And here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the others are future. These two are present. And it gets back to what we talked about that very first week. That there is an already and not yet aspect of the kingdom. We are already part of the kingdom. But in, an, in the same way that an appetizer is part of a meal. It's just the beginning. The fullness is still to come when Jesus comes again. But until then, Jesus is saying that persecution is blessed. Like those who are persecuted are blessed. And that it's inevitable. And so this morning, what we've got before us is this, you know, surprising yet final beatitude. And we're going to walk through it a little bit different than we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Because the last couple of weeks I've been having you write out the, the beatitude as our, our main note. So feel free to write the whole thing out. But as I look at it, because, you know, you've got the beatitude there in verse 10, and then you kind of have some commentary on it in verses 11 and 12. And I feel like in, it's not a different beatitude. There's eight. Those are commentary on the eighth. And as I look at it, I, I feel like there's kind of Jesus has given us three ways that we need to approach persecution. And we need to think about it. And so this morning, that's, what we're, that's how we're going to walk through with the notes that you have in your sermon guide. There's three different ones. We're going to just kind of three key ways to approach or think about persecution. And so just jumping straight in, the first one is this. I already said it. Expect persecution. Expect persecution. You know, so, I mean, it's very much like, welcome to church, expect persecution, right? If you're a visitor, expect persecution, right? Hopefully not from us, but, you know. As believers, we should expect that. We should know that it's going to happen. How many of you have seen the show, heard of the show, remember the show uh, Mythbusters from a couple years ago? Yeah, and so they're trying to dif disprove different myths. Well, this beatitude, this eighth beatitude is a Mythbuster. 
It busts the myth that Christianity is a means of deliverance from suffering. Some people would say, you know, oh, if you live right, you won't be, you know, you won't go through hard times. And Jesus is saying, um, actually, it's a blessed thing, and you will. As we become more like Jesus, we should be, we should expect to be treated like Jesus. It also busts the myth that God loves his children too much to allow them to suffer at the hands of unbelievers. God does indeed love his children. But that does not mean that we'll be insulated from the pain of persecution. It busts the myth that those who suffer persecution are being chastised for their sin. Now that can happen, but that's not happening here. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Often it is precisely because someone is ever increasingly growing in righteousness that they are persecuted. That's kind of the feel here. It busts the myth that suffering is always the sign of God's displeasure in you. It's not. It busts the myth that suffering is selective and restricted to a few special super saints only. John Stott summarizes it well. The condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker. And every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. In other words, a godly life y'all, is not a vaccine to persecution, but an invitation of it. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we're going to live for Christ in this life, we need to know this reality. We need to understand this and expect it to happen. You will be misunderstood. You will be mistreated. You will be maligned for Christ. I mean, count on it. I'm not trying to be, again, I'm, you know, Debbie Downer here. So I'm sorry, any Debbies in the room. But I'm not trying to be like all negative. But we do need to understand this. In John 15, Jesus commenting more on this says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, it's like this. NASCAR drivers should expect there to be crashes. Football players should expect injuries. Baseball players should expect to get beamed every now and then, right? Soldiers should expect to get shot at sometimes. And similarly, Christians should expect persecution. Now, of course, we don't go looking for it. We don't have some, you know, 
martyr complex, trying to find ways to get persecuted, all right? We're not seeking to make enemies of people, but we must understand that unless Jesus is lying, persecution is inevitable. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, he says. And so we should expect this. So do, I mean, expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be seen as peculiar. Expect to be seen as weird, out of touch. Expect to be lied about, falsely accused, mocked, belittled, rejected, set aside as bigoted, and caricatured as the worst of so-called Christians, just lumped in with all the people that we would say, please don't lump us in with. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we face that? Well, there's two, number two and number three. Number two, one of the ways we face this is we embrace it. Number two, we embrace it. We embrace our peculiarness. We embrace our weirdness. We embrace those things. We, we live that. We own it. That is who we are. We are that. We will look different. We will be different from the world. So we embrace that. But also, we embrace the persecution. So number two, if you're right, embrace persecution. But there's a key. For the right reason. For the right reason. And when I say embrace, I'm not saying enjoy the Bible never talks about like enjoying persecution. I mean, that would be, a, that'd be perverse, actually. We don't enjoy pain. Persecution is not fun, ever. But there is a kind of persecution that God blesses and that we are called to rejoice in. And we do want to embrace that. So let's bifurcate some things, make sure we understand what we're not talking about and what we are talking about, all right? To, to be sure that Jesus does not pronounce as blessed those who suffer, for, go through persecution for just any reason whatsoever. He does not do that. Jesus blesses those for what he says right there in verse 10, for, this is so key, righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake now sometimes today christians wind up not be per, being persecuted for their christianity but for actually a lack of it sometimes sometimes they're rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities they're rude let's rephrase that sometimes we are rude we're insensitive we're thoughtless or we're piously obnoxious, self-righteous. Some are rejected because, they're, because of their self-righteousness. Some are rejected because they're lazy and irresponsible. I don't have to have a job. The, the Lord will take care of me. And so you are not blessed if you're persecuted for being a jerk. You're not blessed if you're persecuted because you contend for your opinions more than you contend for Scripture. You're not blessed like if you say you're trying to defend the faith, but you're just absolutely obnoxious and mean-spirited with that and therefore suffer rejection. 
Jesus isn't talking about those things. What Jesus is talking about here is you are blessed when you are persecuted truly for righteousness sake. Righteousness means right belief and right living. It's embodied in Jesus. What he did and what he taught. I mean, the very righteousness that we are persecuted is the very righteousness that the Beatitudes produce in us. And so if we just kind of put a chart, you know, on one side, here's what the world respects, here's what the world praises, and on the other side, what the world considers blessed, and on the other side, here's what Jesus considers blessed, and you just read through the Beatitudes like that, starting with the first one there in verse 3, the world would bless the carefree. But Jesus blesses, well, that's number two, the world would bless those who are proud. But the world blesses those who are impoverished in spirit. The world would bless those who are carefree, but Jesus blesses those who mourn over sin. The world blesses the assertive and the aggressive, but Jesus blesses the meek and the gentle. The world blesses those who can get what they want, but Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then mercy and purity and peacemaking? I mean, just look around at our culture today. Our culture seems to hate those. They prefer canceling one another or dominating one another. But Jesus says that these things, mercy and peacemaking and purity of heart, should mark the righteous person, a kingdom citizen, because they mark Jesus himself. I mean, look at verse 10 and 11, and Jesus ties himself completely to this righteousness. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, here it is, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, and here's the reason, falsely on my account. So he takes, for righteousness' sake, and then here in verse 11, he says, on my account. He ties those two things together. So righteousness looks like Jesus. Which means that the world not only does not care for these qualities, it cares even less for the person who embodies them. The Lord Jesus himself. And so when we think about the phrase, for the sake of righteousness, we're not talking about moralism, we're not talking about, you know, any, any other thing except an ever-increasing following of Jesus. Like, that is what righteousness is. An ever-increasing following of Jesus and being persecuted for that as you turn from the things of the world and you turn to Christ and seeking to live for Him. Embrace that. Embrace persecution for righteousness sake. And again, that doesn't mean you enjoy the pain of it. But it doesn't mean it does mean you endure it. This summer, my family, we, we uh, purchased, uh, I think it was on Amazon Prime. I think you can get it, you know, in a gazillion other platforms. But we downloaded this uh, like eight or ten episode series called Epic by um, a, a Canadian named Tim Challies. And we watched that this summer. There's like eight episodes, about 25 minutes each. I recommend it to, to all of you. It gives you a little bit of 
you know, understanding of some Christian history or whatnot. But, but what Tim Challies does is he travels around to different places in the world to look at different artifacts. Uh, like he finds Amy Carmichael's Bible and reading through, like all these different little things. And he kind of tells some of the story of the history of Christianity by looking at some significant people. Um, and he travels all over the world. Like he goes to every continent except, obviously, Antarctica to, you know, tell this story. And a lot of what he focuses on are, you know, theologians and pastors and missionaries that, you know, many of you might know their names. And if you don't know their names, then watch the show and learn their names. But one of the ones that stood out the most to me was a no-name. And that's why it stood out to me. It's easy to hold up all the people who've done these amazing things, but, but folks who are just like you and me. Just normal folks. And this normal lady was named Marie Duran, and she was a French Huguenot. Now, the, the Huguenots were Protestants in France and had a history of brutal persecution. But by the time she came along, early 1700s, they weren't like being martyred anymore, being massacred, truly. But this young lady that stood out to me, she's 19 years old. Her whole life is before her. And they arrested her for being a Protestant. You couldn't be a Protestant in France. I mean, her whole life she had grown up like reading the Bible and hiding. The church, when the church would gather, it was a small little church and they had to be in hiding. If they got caught, they'd be arrested. She saw her parents arrested. She saw her, her brother arrested. Her, like... And then here she is, the age of 19, her whole life in front of her, and she's arrested. Now, all she has to do to get out of of arrest, and what they did, they put her in a tower with like 40 other women, super hot in the summer, super cold in the winter, not a lot of air circulation in there, just bad conditions. You'd get wet when it rained, snowed. And all she had to do to get out of that is, is just say, I recant. Which means, like, I, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe, like, she was in the tower because she believed in justification by faith alone. Not by works. What, what, what the Bible teaches. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all she had to say was, I recant. I don't believe that. 19 years old. And because she would not recant, there she stayed in that tower for the next 38 years. Now, for one, that puts a little bit of persecution we face in some perspective. But this is someone who is just like you and I. Persecuted for righteousness sake. And so, listen, persecution, I mean, certainly can be, you know, physical and extreme like that. It can be extreme to the point of of death. The church's bloody history marks that, right? Ours is a history of being fed to the lions, of having your head chopped off. Uh, It is a modern day thing. And I mean, thankful, I'm thankful for the pilgrims. They left to try to come here to have religious freedom, right? But it's a modern day thing that persecution's not seen 
as that extreme. Right here. You go to South Sudan. You happen to be born in North Korea. That is your life. But for us, here in the U.S., right now at least, the main form of persecution that we will face is verbal harassment. Sometimes audible, sometimes whispered, sometimes direct, sometimes innuendo. It's the way you're going to be labeled. It's the way people are going to caricature you. It's the way you're going to be looked down upon and canceled as a bigot. I mean, I think of just a couple of examples. I think of a worker, hard worker. He's been faithful at his company, does a great job. But he is now being systematically excluded and forced out because he refuses not to gladly work for his boss who happens to be a homosexual, but because he won't full-on embrace that and say, affirm that and say, yes, great. He should gladly work with We are called to do that, but not affirm. Or think about a friendly student who is systematically being excluded from conversations because she will not just give a rubber stamp to whatever is said. Or the wife who's not invited to the parties of her friends because she won't gossip or be 100% okay with everything that goes on there. A gazillion other examples I could give you. You probably can even create them in your own mind for whatever you're facing right now. And so, friends, verse 11 is for you. Look at verse 11 and look how personal it is. Jesus goes from blessed are those who are persecuted, and now he just speaks right to every single one of you. Blessed are you. Put yourself there. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Amy Pope. Jeff Williams. Kelly Kays. Just go around the room. Blessed are you. When others revile you. And persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Notice that emphasis on you. And then also Jesus expands our understanding of persecution here. It's not just the beheadings and being locked in the towers. He he says, utter all kinds of evil, right? He says, revile you. I mean, this is including, you know, uh, insults and personal attacks. And so when you are going through that, if you are going through that, I know it doesn't feel good in the moment. But the king of glory, glory says you're blessed. And so expect persecution. And when it's done for righteousness sake, truly for righteousness sake, you're not getting persecuted because you're just a jerk, but for righteousness sake, then embrace it. And then thirdly, what else do we do? We rejoice in persecution. Look at verse 12. This is where it really gets a little crazy. 
Let's just read it all so it goes together. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, right there at the end, we've got a little claim of deity from Jesus. Just a side note. When he says, hey, the prophets were persecuted before you, what were they persecuted for? They were persecuted for their allegiance to God. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be persecuted for your allegiance to God. Me. But the bigger point here is, we read that and we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we read rejoice and be glad. And we're like, really? Seriously? I like what John Piper wrote on this. He says, what can justify such counsel to people in pain? Like rejoice and be glad? I see two possibilities. Either this is the walk, either this is the talk of an insensitive, sophomoric, ivory tower theologian who has never known what it is to scream with pain, or this is the talk of one who has seen something and tasted something and knows something about a reality that most people have never tasted or glimpsed. And friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. It's not some pastoral novice that blunders into a funeral home patting people on the back saying, praise the Lord anyhow, as they mourn and grieve and are broken. This is the Lord. And he says to his disciples, most of whom will drink a cup of martyrdom, He says, rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted, when you suffer. And he says this because he knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that what is coming is so much better than anything we could have in this life. And it is worth everything that we may go through in this life. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, to the degree that you believe that you know, what Jesus sees in heaven, to that degree, you will be able to rejoice and be glad now, even in the midst of pain. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, like it is coming. And so one of the clear implications of this passage here is Jesus wants us to desire the reward of heaven far more than we desire the reward of the world. His will is for us to have our hearts primarily in heaven. Our hopes primarily in heaven. Our longings primarily in heaven. Our joy primarily in heaven. I mean, there's no other way that you will rejoice and be glad as things are taken from you and you are persecuted unless you have your hope there. In Christ. Where it cannot be taken I talked about that 
series epic that we rented this summer. And I can't remember if, if he does, I don't think he does a little segment on uh, Jim Elliott and, and Nate Saint. These are some guys, went to Wheaton College, like in the 50s, a couple of other folks as well. And they uh, became missionaries in Ecuador trying to reach unreached Amazonian people. And they, they find some, they, they reach them, the long story. In fact, I think there's a movie made on this a couple of years ago called Into the Spear. So you can maybe watch that over the holiday weekend. But anyhow, they finally make contact. They're trying to do that. And long story, like, ultimately this tribe does become, you know, uh, largely evangelized and many come to Christ. I don't want to give away the, the amazing story, but the dark side of it is that the first several guys trying to make in-person contact get speared. They get killed. Jim Elliott does. Nate Saint does. But Jim Elliott has a famous quote that really kind of captures what we're talking about here. And it's this. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I'm not saying we all need to, you know, go be martyred and give our life away. We can't keep it anyhow, you know, in order to gain something we cannot lose. I'm not saying we need to do that. I am saying, though, we do need to lose our lives in living for Christ. Not death, but giving them up freely. We lose our lives by living lives of righteousness. We lose our lives by giving them to Christ. Living for others, not for ourselves. Showing kindness to strangers and like new neighbors who move in. Who may not, they may not even speak the same language you do. Classmates who join your school and they're on the outside helping bring them in just as you were far away and Jesus brought you near. We give our lives away. We lose our lives by sharing the gospel and having people reject it and us. We lose our lives by graciously, kindly, but firmly not budging from God's word despite the cultural winds that blow differently. Again, we're not, we're not jerks about it. But we're... We don't back down either. And the attacks that we'll take for that. And Jesus is saying, this is a normal life. This isn't odd. I mean, the Beatitudes, these are expectations of kingdom citizens. These are characteristics that should mark kingdom citizens. And he's, so this is a normal life. And so we expect it. Embrace it for righteousness sake. And even rejoice in it. For your reward is great in heaven. And in the midst of it, Christ will hold you fast. He will hold you. 
Jesus never promises. I mean, Mythbusters. He never promises that this life will be easy. But he does promise that he will be with his people and he will rescue us. And sometimes that may be temporarily in this life, but always it is eternally as he brings us home to glory. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, help us with this because this is not, and this is counterintuitive. This doesn't make sense to us. This seems odd. But Father, let us, let us be realists here. Let us not be surprised, as Peter says, by the fiery ordeal that comes upon us. And Father, let us not seek it out. But Father, help us to be strong in you in the midst of persecution. And it's hard. It doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, we know this. Your word tells us that in this world we will have many difficulties. But, praise God, Jesus has overcome the world. And makes us, through the Spirit, more than conquerors. And that there's nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And as we think through that line, one of them is even not persecution. Not the sword. Nothing can separate us. And so Father, give us strength. Give us, help us to be Help us not be deniers. And Lord, give us proper perspective as well. And let us look to the throne. Where despite, for those who are in Christ, where despite our sins and our continuing struggles... Christ sits enthroned with mercy for broken people like me and indeed the whole world's broken and he holds out the hope of the gospel forgiveness in this life peace even in the midst of suffering and eternal life all things made right ultimately when Jesus comes again. Help us to set our hope in you. In Jesus' name.